0: I want to start reading in the 8th verse. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. And you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death. And I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. So let's cover Smyrna first. It was a church that was well acquainted with persecution. Something that is, by and large, foreign to us. Foreign to the American church. Though probably not for long. Persecution has been building and persecution is coming. But we haven't seen it yet like the early church has seen it. Now whenever... We read this part, I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. When we read that, you have to understand, these are the kind of things that keep our best scholars employed. We still debate exactly what that meant to those churches, but we have some reasonable ideas. On the surface, it doesn't make any sense to us about the slander, it doesn't make any sense about... Who's calling themselves Jews that aren't? And why would they do that? But among the many different opinions, let me just cut to one that, here's one theory, that the Jews were exempt, we understand the Jews were exempt from worshiping the Roman ruler by law. Rome excused them, said you don't have to worship the emperor. Now that's an interesting exemption to the Roman law simply because the Romans realized the Jews were monotheistic. They only worshipped one God. And the the Romans believed it was probably less hassle to let this little group of people go over there and do their own thing than to try to force them to worship the Caesar. For whatever reason, whether that was an uh, an accommodation that God uh, designed for his people, or or whatever reasons came about, the bottom line is, Rome, let them do that, and excuse them, you don't have to worship the emperor. Now, the exemption did not extend to the new Christian group, because originally, everybody as far as the early church was concerned, everybody was a Jew. Now get your brain around this. The early church, the beginning, when Jesus said, "On this rock, I build my church." and he had his followers, and he died, was buried, rose again, the Holy Spirit fell. Everybody, as far as the church concerned was concerned, was a Jew, because the Jews, that's where the message came, the message came to the Jews. The The Christians, the early Christians, were Jewish converts. So the minute they became a Jewish convert to what we now know as Christianity, they didn't just stop and say, I'm no longer a Jew. They believed they were the true Jews. And I'm tipping my hand a little bit on this as well. But they stayed in their Judaism because they believed Jesus Christ's coming was their Messiah. Because they believed the coming of the Messiah was the fulfillment of Judaism. It just made sense. This is the full essence of Judaism. This is our Messiah. Now those who did not receive the Messiah, they didn't like these new messianic followers messing up their synagogues. So gradually they begin to urge them out. And when they got them out of the synagogues, the Christians became now a separate sect, distinct, separated from the Jews in the synagogue, and as far as the Romans law was concerned, you're no longer protected. As long as you were a Jew, you were protected from worshiping Caesar, but now that the Jews don't recognize you, and don't accept you, and you don't worship in their synagogues anymore, now... You are under Roman law that you must worship the Caesar. That meant that some Christians in order to avoid persecution perhaps continued to claim that they were a part of the Jewish religion for only one reason. So they wouldn't be persecuted by the Roman law. So maybe that explains why Jesus said, you have some among you who say they're Jews, but they're not, because they were just doing it for self-preservation. The assumption in such a case would be God's not happy with those who use such a dishonest tactic to avoid persecution for their Christian faith. Now, it's an attractive and compelling theory. And if if it's true, it makes a great point for a sermon, because we shouldn't compromise just to escape persecution, right? But I, I'm not sure that's what it means, that's just one of the interesting theories. That's why I say statements like this keep our scholars employed because uh, I can present these to you and we'd probably be divided today on which one you like the best. It's, it's like, it, that's funny isn't it? We, we choose our theological positions by what appeals to us rather than a result of our own studies. But, <clears throat> it's a bit of a stretch That those who sought protection under the guise of Judaism. Would then be accused of slandering their Christian brothers and sisters. That's where that theory breaks down. Because he said I know the slander that's going on by those who call themselves Jews. But they're not. So why would you call yourself a Jew just to escape persecution. But then turn around and slander your Christian brothers and sisters. So something breaks down there. But what maybe makes better sense is they were false. In the sense that those who committed violent persecuting acts against believers were unworthy to truly be called Jews. Now, let's go back to the concept that what is true Judaism all about? True Judaism is about seeing Jesus as fulfilling the whole purpose of Judaism to lead them to a Savior. That's true Judaism. So any Jew who accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior was, in essence, fulfilling perfect Judaism. They were the true Jews. Who would the false Jews be? The ones who did not receive Jesus Christ and accept him as their Messiah. So now the Jews who were Jews by heritage are suddenly considered no Jews at all because they missed the fulfillment of Judaism when they rejected Jesus Christ. Well, whenever God said, I know those who are, uh, say that they're Jews among you, because they would say, well, we're Jews. Our father is Abraham. We've, we've come from a long line of Judaism. God is rebuking them said, you're not Jews at all. If you were real Jews, you would understand that the Messiah was coming, and he did come, and you rejected him. So I think more than anything else when he says that people are rejecting... Uh, uh, claiming themselves to be Jews, and they're not. He's rejecting the old Jews who rejected him. It was the false Jews, and this makes sense. The real Jews who became the false Jews, it's them who was persecuting the Christians. Now that makes sense. Of course they were. We know that as a matter of history. The old line Jews were persecuting the new Messianic Jews. Furthermore, it says they were slanderers. And this is more than verbal abuse. The word implies that they were informants. Now this is where it gets interesting. Not just slanderers, not just calling them names, but they were working in cahoots with the Roman law because it was difficult under Roman law to prosecute Christians if you didn't have enough proof. So in order to get the proof to prosecute the Christians you got to get an insider. You've got to get informant. You've got to get somebody in there. So the false uh, the Jews, the old Jews, were ratting on the new ones. They would work themselves into the fellowship of, the company of, or maybe even the congregation of the churches. Then they'd go and tell the Roman government, well, why would they do that? Well, uh, of course we know why they would do that. They wanted to get rid of Christians. So if they could find spy out Christians and report to the Roman government we know where the Christians are we have the goods on them we will bear witness to the fact then the Romans could come in make their arrest and use these Jews who were the slanderers or the informants as their proof and then they could prosecute the law against the Christians. And then Jesus says to them, I, I know about the false Jews who are persecuting you. I know about the informants that have infiltrated your congregation. Jesus speaks in comforting words. He said, don't be afraid about, for what you are about to suffer. That's an unnerving message from God. We all like to hear from God. But when God speaks, and the first thing he says is, don't be surprised. Don't be afraid. You're about to suffer. That sends your mind reeling. I tell you, THE DEVIL WILL PUT SOME OF YOU IN PRISON TO TEST YOU. AND YOU WILL SUFFER PERSECUTION FOR TEN DAYS, BUT BE FAITHFUL. AND THEN HE HAD TO THROW THIS IN. EVEN TO THE POINT OF DEATH, NOW THAT'S ENCOURAGING. WHAT IN THE WORLD IS COMING DOWN THE ROAD? WHAT IS IT WE'RE FACING? HE'S TALKING, YOU MIGHT DIE, BUT DON'T GET DISCOURAGED. Two forms of persecution are definitely implied in this. There's the incarceration. And he said you'll be put away for 10 days. Don't make anything mystical out of the... Ten days. It was just a reference to the fact that people often were put in temporary holding until their trial. That's all that is. And that probably was a common thing to be held for 10 days. Doesn't mean that they had to be there for 10 days, but it was alluding to that practice. You're going to be incarcerated before you are taken to trial. That's one form of persecution that was prophesied against them. The second one is not just incarceration, but it's execution. Even to the point of death. God knew what would lie ahead for these people in this church. He knows what lies ahead for you. Life catches us by surprise. If I could just have you review your life for the past year or two years, maybe some of you could come up with situations that caught you by surprise. Life was sailing along just fine, but out of the blue. Something happened. Oh I didn't see that one coming. Changed your life. Changed your direction. You didn't see it coming. Bam. God did. It doesn't make any difference what you got hit with. God saw it coming. And I, I have to believe that God would have prepared you for that. Even though he didn't have to tell you what was coming. He would have said just hold on. Everything's going to be alright. Buckle up. The storm's coming. If you'd have been listening... I have no doubt God did not let you totally get blindsided by that, but he strengthened you. And sometimes when we look back over those things, we see how things were shaping up. How God was preparing us for what was coming. We didn't see it at the time, but you can see in hindsight. God strengthened you. Just for that moment, you were prepared in ways you did not know you were being prepared. But God knows. God knows what lies ahead for me. He knows if I'm going to suffer for his, his cause. He knows things I don't know. He knows things that I would be better off not knowing. Sometimes if I know what's coming ahead I get discouraged and I bolt. I don't want to hang around for this. I, I guess God has to let some things kind of sneak up on us. So we'll go through it. You don't have a choice, do you? I don't know everything that tomorrow holds. I don't have all the events of my life penciled into my calendar. Come on, people. How many of you have a planning calendar? You've got the date written when you're going to get cancer. <laughs> on this date in this year, I'm going to be in a car wreck. We just don't pencil these things in. They just happen, don't they? But God knows. And God can carry you through it. So for the church of Smyrna, he says, I don't have a problem with you. I just see some things coming down the road. Now, if you would go and read the church of Philadelphia, which I I already said, I don't know that I'll preach Philadelphia by itself, because it's kind of a parallel church. Philadelphia was a church that was also suffering persecution. But God promised Philadelphia that He was going to make the enemies come and and bow down at their feet. Now, He didn't give Smyrna that kind of promise. One of the things we learn from Smyrna is first of all, life is not fair. But God is. Smyrna suffered persecution. And the promise to them was, you got more coming. You haven't seen anything yet. Philadelphia suffered persecution. But God said, I'm going, to, you'll, go, you'll be avenged before your enemies. Now why didn't Smyrna get that? I mean, let's, let's get two real churches somewhere around here. And we're both going to do the same thing. And this church, God says, it's, it's going to get worse for you. Just hold on. I'm, all, I, I'm right behind you. And this one over here, he said, don't worry. Those people who are doing this to you, they're going to be humbled before you. And this church said, saying, why not us? You know, you see things in life a lot of times that don't seem very fair to you. You see other people being blessed by God. And you start saying, what about me, God? I've been trying to live for you. Look how much tithe I paid last year. Why me? What's wrong with us? You have tragedy come. And, and other people that you know are not trying as hard to live for God. As they could. And maybe you in know, your husband but not trying as hard as you are. And they don't seem to have any problems. And it just seems like life's not fair. But God is always fair. And in the end, see that that equality, that balancing doesn't always come in this life. But the balance always comes in eternity. The other point that we learn about this is things are not always as they seem. One of the first things that Jesus said to the church of Smyrna is, he said, I'm aware of your poverty. Now Jesus had to come and tell them the way it really was. Smyrna knew they were in poverty. The church. Probably everybody in the town knew that it was a poor church. The congregation certainly knew it was a poor church. The reputation had got around, I, I know you're a poor church. But then Jesus told them something they didn't know. He said, I know you're poverty, you're rich. Sometimes God has to speak truths to us that are not apparent to us. Sometimes you have to go to God and get his report to find out how it really is. Your report doesn't get the whole job done. You can go to God and tell him how bad things are. Let God tell you how it really is. I know your poverty, but he says, you're really rich. They aren't aware of it, but God sees what we can't see. They were absolutely deemed rich by God's method of accounting. Wouldn't you like to know what God's report on you is? I know what my report is on me. What's God think of me? What's he think of my circumstances? You know, I, I look at me and I think, God, I'm so weak. What's God think of me? I think, God, I struggle so much. I think, God, I'm not running the race so well. But it might be a surprise to some of us who maybe you're hard On yourself it might be a shocker to you when you get to heaven and you stand before God and he gives you his report and you're standing there trembling say God I'm not sure I did so well I could if I had to do it over again I would do it a whole lot better and you're trembling and waiting. Here's the report. And God opens up the books and he looks and he evaluates what you've done. He looks at you and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Now, I didn't know. didn't have a clue I was doing any good. I thought I was blowing it the whole way. Well done. I prefer God's report. The church of Pergamum. The first church of compromise. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write. These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live. Where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me. Not even in the days of Antipas. The only martyr named specifically. In the letters to the seven churches. My faithful witness who was put to death in your city. Once again, it repeats where Satan lives. Satan's throne, your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin. So that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Notice how those two things go together. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, which we read the infiltration of the Nicolaitans that they attempted to infiltrate the church of Ephesus. Of course, Ephesus rejected them. They made their way into Pergamum. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who is victorious. I will give some of the hidden manna I will also give that person a white stone with a new name on it. Known only to the one who receives it. Now the church of Pergamum had circumstantial challenges. It was planted in a city that was famous for being the throne of Satan. Famous for being that city where Satan lives. That must have been some more wicked city. The seat, the throne of Satan, his town. It was over, there was, a, there was a heating cult in that city called Asclepius. And can you imagine a church Dealing with the challenge of having a false healing cult. Popular false healing cult in town. Now I don't know we've ever had that. But you're going to have to use your imagination to try and, and think what would that be like. We are the church that preaches Jesus Christ, salvation, healing. We believe, you know, we, we pray for one another's healings. We go to the hospital, we pray for people. We, we believe that's a part of our message to people. You have lost people, you have lost neighbors, you find out they're sick. You might even offer and say, you know, I believe God heals. Do you mind if I remember you in prayer? Mind if I pray you, for you right now? We, that's a part of our message. Can you imagine dealing with a huge Immensely popular cult in town that they had a message of healing too, but it wasn't by the power of God. I mean this is not the first time that there's had to be a showdown between the true and the false. jannies and Jambries. Moses was out there saying, I'm going to prove to you God sent me. And then Moses would perform a miracle and jannies and Jambres, they'd do the same thing. Now he's got problems. He's supposed to do miracles and prove God. But then you got the power of Satan doing miracles too. And confusing people. They don't know who to believe. How am I supposed to believe your God is real when they do miracles too? See the challenges that goes, goes along with that? Here in this wicked city. This city of aggressive wickedness. This city where the persecution had grown so great that they actually had... At least one martyr already. He was he was well known in the city. Antipas, well known as being a Christian martyr. They had lost one of their brothers already, murdered in the city, for his crime of being a Christian. And Jesus says, I gotta commend you. You've been up against some pretty severe persecution. You've even lost one of your church members i got to hand it to you. You haven't folded yet. You're still hung in there. It didn't cause you to abandon your faith. Because certainly if persecution comes, if we learned next Sunday that one of our members had been persecuted and executed just for being a member of Westside. I wonder how many people would stick with Westside after that. It makes you think. But if you're going to stick in there and hold in there and not shake in your faith. That's what we're talking about when God says, i got to hand it to you. In spite of the severe persecution you're holding in there, you haven't abandoned your faith. But he said, I, I have a problem. The problem you have is not that you've abandoned your faith due to the pressure of persecution. The problem is you've got internal compromise going on in the church. Now isn't that an interesting mix uh, of, of uh, uh, circumstances and, and problems in the church? A church that is so strong in their faith that persecution cannot turn them away but they're messed up theologically. Scholars like to debate how messed up theologically can you be and still go to heaven? Mark can design a Sunday school class around that subject one day. How theologically messed up can you be? And start talking about some of the prime doctrines. Do you really have to believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit? To be saved? Do you really have to believe there's a Trinity? Does it cost you your salvation if you don't believe in that? You really have to believe there's a hell? How theologically messed up can you be? Jesus said, you haven't lost your faith. You haven't abandoned me. You know, just the faith in Jesus was a very fundamental thing. They just, they just held to Him. I believe He's the Son of God. I believe it was the real man. I'll follow Him. If they start killing us, it doesn't matter. I'll follow Him. But boy were they messed up doctrinally. You got Nicolaitans that have infiltrated there and started spreading their nonsense and some of their Gnosticism that they were spreading around and salvation other ways. And it was poisoning the congregation. You haven't abandoned your faith. But you got some weird doctrines floating around in there. What are you going to do about that? He said, one of the problems you got is somebody there has been preaching the doctrine of Balaam. And then you got to go back and study the story of Balaam. And the whole problem there was just getting ancient Israel to compromise. See, the whole thing about the reference to Balaam is compromise. If Balaam could just get them to compromise, then he could destroy them. So he said, what you got here is you got the, you got the practice. You got the, the, the doctrine of Balaam going on. And the reference to Balaam was that they began to eat meats sacrificed to idols. And the same thing applied to this which is probably why he made reference to Balaam. Because in this city, of course you know from the writings of Paul that early Christianity had some concerns in the church about people eating sacrificial meats. Now Paul took a different approach on this. He said people who are weak in the faith probably make a big deal out of where did this meat come from? Was it sacrificial meat or not? People who are strong in the faith They don't make a big deal out of it. But it did become a problem in this church because where you had to eat the sacrificial meats had a lot to do with it. So the pagans loved to party. And they would throw these big parties in town and and it was free food. Free food attracts people. Especially when you have these banquets, these lavish banquets being thrown by the occupants of the city where Satan lives, where you know what's going on at the parties is not good, but some of the Christians are loading up their families and going down to the parties. Why? Free food. And they are exposing themselves to what's going on in the pagan festivals and the pagan rituals because, man, they've got the best barbecue down there. If you haven't been to one of those yet, you haven't lived. Yeah, but that's a filthy place to be. Yeah, but you don't have to do that stuff. Just go for the food. Now, I want to tell you, if that doesn't speak to the relevance of today, if I have to spell it out for you, you don't get it. Because it's exactly the kind of compromises that's going on in the lives of Christians today. Yeah, we can go be among them, but we don't have to become part of them. And you know what? There's a certain sense in which that is true. We have to be in the world, but don't have to be of the world. But there is also another sense in which people, Christians, are carrying that too far... And I've run into this time and time and time again in my ministry. And never, when I have run into circumstances like that, has it ever come out well for those people who have been compromising. I pastored a church one time. I'm not going to say where. Because when I move on, I'm going to tell church stories. <laughs> and it'll be Anonymous. Pastor church one time. And every year, they came, a group of men came and took every table we had out of the church and hauled them down, so the trucking company that the men in my church worked for, three or four men, I think worked for so that could have their annual party, company picnic. It was nothing but a big booze party. Honest to goodness. Tables came back. I washed in beer. Every year. I'm glad I don't pastor there anymore. Drove me nuts. Take, come and get God's tables. And take them down. And the swills falling on earth. Then bring them back. Don't even put them back where they belong. Now I'm getting myself all worked up again. I thought I was over it. And I had, I had people from my church that were part of that. Going down there to that drunk fest. Some of them going down and drinking with them. Some of them going down. Well, we don't drink. We just drink near beer. Give me a break. Give me a break. How much like the world do you really want to be just to look like them, to smell like them, to act like them, to talk like them, to drink like them. As much as you can. Get as close as you can. I'm getting on my holiness mode. I might get voted out, but I don't care. I'm too old to care. How much like the world do you want to be? Because we're talking compromise. It's not about seeing how much like The world you can be, it's about seeing how much like Jesus you can be. That's always been the goal of the child of God. Not to see how far you can go and not get caught up in what they're doing. But to see how far away you can stay. Worldly compromise. The doctrine of Balaam. Get them to... to compromise. So some of the people from the church go down to the parties because it's free food, they eat their meats, but it's starting to have its impact on the church. And Jesus knows it. So he says to John, send this message to Pergamum. You've been compromising too much. Now if you go and read the letter to the church of Thyatira That's an interesting church as well, but it's basically compromise. I know you've got that woman Jezebel in your church. And the two things that were happening in both churches is the compromise that started off simple, devolved into sexual immorality in both churches. You see, compromise will take you down the tubes. It's what they call in the legal profession the slippery slope. You're getting over into there where it just leads. You say, well, there's nothing wrong with this. But where does it lead? It takes you down. It's just another notch down. And when you end up, you don't want to be there. But you found yourself there because you took that first step. Or you shouldn't. Dear God, give me Christians who are more determined to live like Jesus than they are to see how much they can live like the world. God will do something with that congregation. Eating sacrificial meats, which they could justify, grew into sexual immorality. Beware of the gateways. Now, you go back to the Ephesian church. and The Nicolaitans were making their way around and trying to get into the churches. And they went to Ephesus. And Jesus said, I'm so proud of you. You didn't let, let the Nicolaitans in. But he said, to Pergamum, you got a problem. Somebody let him in. Somebody put him in leadership. Somebody gave him a Sunday school class. And the Nicolaitans have worked their way in, and they're preaching their false doctrine, and they're poisoning people. They tolerated... A few Nicolaitans in their church, maybe they tolerated it because it made numbers in the church. Well, at least we've got a full house. If it weren't for the Nicolaitans, we'd be down by half. It's better to have them here and be preaching to them because we just got to have a full house. You know, there's compromise that you just don't want to do sometimes. And people come in with weird doctrines, and it, you know you, you've got you've got to watch out for the house of God. You want to come in here? I don't care what you believe. I don't care what you do. If you don't come in here and you don't cause problems, I'll be glad to be able to preach to you. But if you come in here and start spreading that nonsense, and start spreading false doctrine, and start promoting false practices. Hit the door! We can't have it. There's no accommodating that kind of nonsense. How can Jesus hold the entire church accountable for a few people who are entertaining the Nicolaitans? Because the church was not taking care of business. Because the church was not overseeing what was going on in the church. Well it's just a few there, yeah but somebody is letting this happen. The church is ignoring what's happening. The leadership is not on top of this. Somebody needs to take care of business so he holds the whole church accountable. They're there because the pastor hasn't done something. The leadership hasn't done something. Somebody is letting them get away with this. I don't want to make any mistake about it. The 21st century American church faces great temptations today. But I think one of the greatest temptations coming against the 21st century American church is the temptation to compromise. The tide is turning. Doesn't make any difference what social issue we may choose to talk about. They're trying to change the church. They're trying to say the Bible is irrelevant. They're trying to say you have to look at it through modern eyes. What they wrote back then is irrelevant to what we're doing today. You have to come up to the age. That's compromise. It's the biggest weapon Satan is using against us today. And we might. We might pacify ourselves by saying, yes, but I'm still holding on to Jesus. I haven't abandoned church. I haven't given up on loving God. But God is saying, but there's compromise going on. And it's not healthy. I wonder, how will our younger generation face the challenge of compromise? It's not easy to hold the line. I'll tell you, it wears me ragged trying to hold the line. It's not easy. One of these days, we're going to turn this pulpit over to a younger generation. One of these days, the younger generation is going to step up and teach our Sunday school classes. The younger generation will come in and move the old worship team out and they'll come in one of these days and my question not an accusation my question is how will the younger generation deal with the temptation of compromise in the church we are literally one generation away from in the words the vernacular used in the revelation of Jesus coming and taking the candlestick away hold fast to the faith. As the reins are turned over to another generation don't you dare compromise. If I can come back from the grave and haunt you, I will. (laughs) Younger generation, are you prepared to guard the church against buying into the world's values? Are you prepared to do that? Are you prepared to hone your senses, to recognize compromises and reject them? Or are you buying into the world's mindset? And Jesus said to conclude his message, he said to the overcomers, to him that overcomes, I will give him hidden manna and a white stone. Hidden manna, just, just understand it means something good provided by the hand of God. Doesn't literally mean there's going to be manna Like there was in the Old Testament. It's a reference to God will take care of them. He said to the overcomer. I'll give you something good. The man was good. But then he said the white stone. I'll give you a white stone. We also wonder what that meant. But in all likelihood. In the ancient judicial system. The jury would vote. For guilty or not guilty. By voting with a white stone. Or a black stone. And they'd count up figure out what the jury voted. And it's very likely that what Jesus is saying is to the overcomer, it's going to be the white stone. It'll be a judgment, a jury judgment of non-conviction. Nothing will be brought against you. You're declared innocent. Not accused by heaven, not judged by heaven. I'll vote the white stone. That Jesus said, I'll vote the white stone for you. If you overcome. But if you don't, I think that's the untold part here. You have to ponder. If you don't, if you don't overcome, overcome what? Overcome the compromise that's already setting in. You know, people, in my assessment, it is infinitely harder. To reverse course and back up once you've gone down the road of compromise than it is never to have gone in the first place. When I was out on vacation with my family many many years ago I was just a young boy we went to the Grand Canyon and I asked my dad, well, you know, there's a little trail leading down here. Can I, can I follow that trail and go down? He said, you just remember one thing. It takes you three times as long to get back up as it does go down. I didn't go. And it seems like my Heavenly Father keeps reminding me. Hey, I'd like to go explore this path. Well, if you go, you just remember it's going to take you three times as much energy. Take you three times as long to get back as it did for you to go down that road. And those of you who have slipped over the line and said, That's okay, I'll just go and I'll come back, no, you won't. It's going to take you a lot longer to restore and get back to what you used to have than it did for you to lose it. Compromise is expensive. Bow your heads.